bought with the precious blood of Christ Jesus to be his people. We've read this morning from the Gospel of John to one of the signs that Jesus did in the cleansing of the temple. The earlier part of the chapter deals with the first sign of Christ's public ministry with the changing of water into wine. People seem to have a fascination with signs. Even today. Just think of the popularity uh, of the movie that God is not dead. Hmm? And all the controversy that went with that. And I'm not going to give a critique of that movie now. But just to note a real danger with signs. They fail to see that signs are to signify, to point to that which is real and true and genuine. They put the emphasis on the sign rather than to what it points to and verifies. In the Bible, we have signs given, particularly in the Old Testament. And the purpose of signs is to direct our attention to the reality to which it points. God used signs to show forth the reality of who God is, the reality of what God does, the truth of what God teaches in his holy word. And they're directed in light of that knowledge of God and of his being and of his works to direct us to worship and to serve and obey God as he has set forth in the truth of his words so that God may receive the glory and the honor. For example, in our worship service this morning, if you noted in the Ten Commandments, it begins by stating who God is. I am the Lord, your God. The God who saves us, who brings us out of the bondage, that bondage of sin. And he's to be totally our God. And then the second commandments, in light of who God is, we are to worship him. Not with empty formality or after the pattern of the unbelievers and what the world desires. But our worship must conform to his being. God is a spirit. They that worship him in, is, must worship him in spirit and in truth. And that God is a holy God who is to be honored 
That's the third commandment. And the fourth commandment then is that God is to be our God every day of the week. As he set forth in his word. The other commandments show us then how, in light of that knowledge of God, we are to treat others and our social responsibilities before the Lord. Incidentally, you find that same pattern in prayer, huh? in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And you find that same pattern also in the Gospel of John. John begins that way. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. That that Jesus is God. And the Word was made flesh. And it tabernacled, it templed among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And he came to redeem a people. To do the work of God. And he calls his disciples unto them. And if you read the rest of that first chapter, you see how even in the calling of the instruments that God would use to build his church, that there's a real emphasis, too, that his disciples, the names they used for him, recognized his calling, recognized who he was in his being. Jesus gave the signs of his work. In the changing of water into wine, that he's the one who truly gives life, who gives joy, who gives blessedness, and who is the king of kings, even as he directs his mother to listen to him and God's word. And then you have that passage which we looked at this morning. The cleansing of the temple. And I would note also that this cleansing of the temple takes place in the beginning of Christ's ministry. But it's also renewed at the end of his ministry. When on Palm Sunday, he he cleanses the temple once again. Because Jesus' work was to make us his temple, cleansed and purified to his praise and to his glory.
Jesus is now coming to Jerusalem. He's coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of the Passover. That Passover that was a reminder to God's people that their deliverance from death came because the blood of the Lamb was shed upon the doorpost. They were delivered because blood was shed for their sins. The people are coming. And they came from all over the world to worship God. And they did, as the psalmist says, bring an offering and come into his courts. And that's where the problem began. With the offerings. Because as they brought their offerings, the sheep, their goats, even their doves for the poor. It had to pass the judgment of the judges, of the leaders of the Jews. And as they came, you found around that earthly temple the merchants selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and the money changers doing their business. They did that because, according to the Old Testament, these sacrifices had to meet approval. They couldn't be lambs with blemish. And the offering had to be in the local currency. They found they could make a big profit doing that with greed. So outwardly, they were just saying, we're keeping worship right. And they totally ignored that God is the spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit. The people were coming and should have been come because they brought their lambs and their, their offerings because their sin needed to be paid for. Should have been a time of weeping for their sins, but rejoicing in the grace and mercy of God. Rejoicing now, because even as Jesus called the disciples, they said, Behold, the Lamb of God. That God was sending his Son to be an atonement for our sins. They were making a mockery of what worship really is. God's people humbly coming into the presence of that holy God. And Jesus didn't just shake his head at their ignorance, but he became angry, filled with righteous indignation. You know the story well of how he drove them out, made a whip, 
turned over the money changers' tables where they were changing their currency into the local currency. It's very clear of the anger that Christ had at really this blasphemy of God and this mockery of true worship. He said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Christ is showing who he is. It's his father's house. He is God's son. It's a house of prayer. When Solomon dedicated that temple, the original temple, it was where people would come to pray to God, to confess their sins, to seek his grace, to praise and glorify him from the heart. Not another day with just business as usual. He exercised his authority as God's only begotten son when he cleansed the temple from these perversions. My father's house. In the beginning chapters of the Gospel of Luke, you have that account where Jesus is 12 years old. Remember that one? They had come to the temple, and Mary and Joseph had left home, and they couldn't find Jesus, and they went back. And what did Jesus say? Don't you know I must be about my father's business? It's where God has chosen to set his name and to dwell among his people. He's doing his father's business. When he did this, and when he made that claim that he had that authority as a son of God to do so, I think we'd say it scared the daylights out of his disciples. (laughs) They knew he'd have to pay for that. You know how he knew? How they knew? It's an amazing thing. They knew the Bible. They knew the Bible. They knew that the psalmist in Psalm 69 had said that the zeal for his house would destroy him, would eat him away, would consume him. It would lead him to die. I'm impressed at that account with the disciples that they remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. They knew the scriptures. And that's what's needed today, too, to worship God, is to know God's word, to rely on it, to trust it. 
the reaction of the religious leaders was just the opposite. They mocked Christ. They said to him, what sign do you show to us since you do these things? In effect, they're saying to Jesus, who do you think you are that you can come in here and do that? Show us a sign showing us that you have that authority and that power. What they, rather ironic, what they fail to see is his cleansing of the temple was the sign that he was who he said he was. In Malachi, the first five verses, he makes it very clear. He says, the Lord whom you seek will come to his temple. The one foretold in Second Chronicles, huh? God himself would come. He would come. And what would he do? He would purify the sons of Levi. He would cleanse those responsible for the worship of God. He would cleanse them from their sins. Instead of the Jews being torn in heart and spirit and repenting of their empty and vain worship, of seeing what they can get out of it. And incidentally, that's the standard for most people today. Huh? They choose a church that's going to, they can get the most out of it, the way they want it, on their terms. Instead of repenting, they became angry. They didn't repent of their, their greed or their corruption. They didn't confess their sins. They were angry at Jesus. What sign do you show us? People never like to be confronted with their sins. We need to repent. Jesus' answer was, and, and he explained that also, he said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And they mocked and scorned that answer. Destroy this temple. They've been working on it for 46 years and it still wasn't finished. It still wasn't completed, that earthly temple. And that's how they responded. It's taken 40 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? In effect, they're saying to God, you're crazy. You can't do it. Jesus was speaking about his own body. Emmanuel, God with us. True God, 
dwelling among men, tabernacling among them. That's what he was talking about. He wasn't talking about the type, but the reality. He was talking about his own death on the cross and his resurrection in three days. Earlier, the disciples realized what Jesus did would get him into trouble because they knew the book of Psalms. When Jesus speaks now, they didn't realize the truth until Christ rose from the dead. Then they knew Jesus is that very temple of God because he is God in the midst of his people. His disciples remembered that he had said to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now, we need also to understand the fullness of it and the implication of this. In the next verse, it says, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man because he knew what was in man. That's a kind of a strange ending or commentary, summary of this cleansing of the temple. When you see God for who he is, you either believe in him or reject him. When the word of God comes, it doesn't come empty. It has an effect. And it says that many believed in his name when, the sign, when they saw the signs which he did. And we would say, you know, that's great. But then it's like he takes it away right away. Jesus did not commit himself to them. Why not? Because there were many that I'm sure were glad. They, they felt freed from the yoke of the religious leaders of that day, huh? They didn't like being ripped off. But Jesus also knew within three years some of these same people would be shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus knows the heart, not just empty words. He knows man. And there's a rather significant statement He did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that any 
should testify of man because he knew what was in man. I want to get that through to you this morning. All of us tend to want to know the opinions and evaluations that men put upon us. That's why you have your hairstyle. That's why you're wearing the clothing you're wearing today. That's why you're... We determine value by what others think it's worth. What man esteems pretty, good, wise, valuable, important, priorities. It's determined what others think. We're called to be the servants of God. The most important thing in any of our lives is one day to hear the word of God say, well done, my good and faithful servant. We are here not to impress others or to have a good self-concept or to receive the praise of men as we... having to shout forth our goodness and what we've accomplished and what we've done. Jesus looks at the heart. Notice what it says here. Jesus did not commit himself because he knew all men. He had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. The same came unto Jesus by night, saying, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher sent from God, for no one can do the things, God, that you do, except God be with him. And Jesus says, except a man be born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. God looks at the heart, and he looked at the heart of Nicodemus. We thank God that Nicodemus was born again by the Spirit of God. That when Nicodemus came trying to impress Jesus with real good person skills, God looked right at his heart. You see, when you worship God, you're in the presence of that holy God. We come as sinners, weak and defiled, who can't stand for a moment on our goodness. We need God's grace and mercy. And then you need to worship God for his praise. Chapter 4, the woman of Samaria. When she recognized that Jesus was the Messiah, the first thing she on her mind was, how do I worship him? And she didn't understand it fully. She asked in terms of where. Jesus says, God is a spirit, and they that worship him in spirit and in truth. I want to note two other things in closing. In Christ, the temple is fulfilled. But for you who are in Christ, remember Second Chronicles now, God sets his name upon you. 
in 2 Corinthians where God deals with how we should live, how we're to flee all immorality and that. He reminds us that we are the temple of God wherein God now dwells. Our temples need to be cleansed. Each of us, too, need Christ to cleanse us, to purify us, so that we can truly worship. And when we come to worship, as the psalmist says, to bring your offerings, huh? when you realize that the blood of the Lamb was slain, as signified in this Passover, for the washing away of your sins. I'm going to give you a quick summary of the book of Romans. Huh? That's what the first 11 chapters is all about, what God has done. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. That's the offering you bring to God, a consecrated service. And there's still a temple waiting for us. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am there you may be also. In Revelations, right near the end, God says, and there'll be nothing that defiles. It'll need no cleansing because the Lamb of God dwells therein. What a day of rejoicing that will be. In the meantime, we have God's house of prayer where God's people pray to him and praise him and look unto him. The book of Revelation ends with these words, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Heavenly Father, cleanse us from all iniquity, create in us a new spirit, Make us submissive to your words. The one who knows our hearts discerns our thoughts. Remove all pride, arrogance, self-righteousness from us. Keep us in the hollow of your hand until you come again in glory. For Jesus' sake, amen.